Welcome to Flip Storation, a podcast dedicated to the stories of those who strip, sand, finish, and repeat. Whether you're into furniture flipping as a hobby, a side income, or for restoring the purity of a vintage piece, welcome to the Flip Storation Nation. Uh, today, we're welcoming Aaron from Moore's Refinishing. He's a restoration finisher with 50,000 followers on Instagram and owns a shop in Southern California where he uses only the finest products to transform your beloved pieces into works of art. Aaron, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. It's great to have you here. Could you give our listeners just a brief introduction to you, what you do, who you are, and then we'll get into the fun conversations as we go. Of course. So I'm Aaron from Moore's Refinishing, uh, located in Garden Grove. I've uh, been doing this for about 18 years now. Uh, started at, I think, about 17 years old, apprenticing, and you know now here we are. So you know we bring back you know, grandma's old furniture, we bring back, you know, we, we say we do pieces from the 1700s to straight off the boat. We've seen everything. Some customers will buy furniture, uh, you know, brand new, don't like the color, bring it to us. So it's like, we can do everything. Right on, man. That's awesome. So Aaron, tell me a little bit about your story. So I noticed that, you know, the kind of the story behind, there was a man named Butch Crane, and I believe he had Blankenship Refinishing opened a long time before you got there. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Okay. So yeah, at 17, you know, I started working under a different business over in Anaheim, I believe it was. Um, He taught me, started from nothing to, you know, knowing how to run the shop. About 21 years old, I believe, so probably five years into doing refinishing, this Butch Crane called me and wanted me to buy the business. At the time, you know, I think he wanted $50,000 and at 21 years old, that's, you know, an absurd amount of money. So, you know, kept my day job. Every six months, he would call me with a lower price, a lower price, and then he would um, you know, I would always deny because I just, you know, 20,000, 30,000. It's like, that's still too much money for, you know, a 22 year old kid at that point, probably. Uh, finally, about uh, probably, tw- I think it was 2010, he called me up and said, I'm retiring in, in a month, five grand. The shop is yours. I just want you to take care of my customers like I know you would do. So even then, you know, five grand plus, you know, the new rent of the, you know, the business, all the deposits for, Edison, this, you know, gas company, I go, that's still a lot of money, you know, borrowed money from my family and, you know, started with the bare minimum. And here we are, you know, 13 years later, we're still in business. Yeah, it's funny, because I, you know, being on Instagram, also, I have followed a lot of uh, resellers who post beautiful work, you know, beautiful projects. And, And then I found that you were the source of so many of them. It was it was pretty cool. I, you know, uh, the Instagram community is really fun because you started, you know, it, it just shrinks the world down. When my dad started our business, it was the yellow pages for advertising. It was, you know, h- hitting the pavement after hours to hit, you know, do the estimates with in clients' homes. And it was just such a um, clunky way of business, but it was the only way. And so Instagram now, you know, the community is so, you could talk to someone across the country and just chat with them anytime, any, you know, 24-7 like we do and like I've done with others. And it was wild when I discovered that you were doing a lot of the work for these resellers that I admired. I said, this is some beautiful, you know, some beautiful work coming out of, you know, I thought they were doing all of it, you know, because some resellers do their own work and, or they do a little bit themselves and let, you know, a professional do the the bigger projects. But when I found that out and I found you eventually, I was like, oh, this guy really does the kind of work that I appreciate. It was just really top notch and it showed through as they posted pictures of their, you know, pieces for sale and such. And, Yeah, you do phenomenal work. They definitely make it look better with all of their high end photography. (laughs) So when you see it in their store versus seeing my videos on like the the Instagram page, how, you know, just dirty the shop is, it's not well lit, but you know, it still gets the point across. But yeah, the, the photography, some of the stores that we work with do is just top notch. Yeah. When did your business, um, transition? Because for me, you know, when I started, uh, I was taking over my dad's business. You know, I grew up in that and he was doing a lot of that, you know, as you described the grandma's furniture type mm-hmm. refinishing, it's, you know, it's rocking chairs that have no value except the family value. You know, there's no resale, you know, resale value. But Sentimental then, is priceless though, it, too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then it eventually evolved to where I found my niche in the same market. You found yours in the sense of the mid-century, you know, in that way. And uh, it just shifted. It shifted to where I was primarily doing mostly all reseller work, 
a little bit of the regular work mixed in, but such a big shift. Um, when do you think that happened for you? I mean, was that a, an intentional shift or did that just kind of happen organically uh, as you made relationships and, you know? I think it came organically. Like I think the first store we started working with in that world was a store called the Modern Vault down in Newport Beach. And, you know, they started with a small storefront and we were just doing touch-ups and fill a veneer and do those little things at first. And then it just, they started tagging me and things. Another store would find me and then the next, you know, so on and so forth. And then we had, I think at a peak, probably 10 or 12 stores bringing us furniture and we were doing probably 90% you know, store refinishing versus homeowners. The residential slowed down dramatically. And then I think, you know, this, when the pandemic shutdown started, the homeowners came back in full force. The stores slowed down, obviously. And then the, the homeowners started seeing their own furniture in their home. What I had heard, they were all saving a lot of money. No, no, no preschool, no driving to work. And they were all still sitting here on Zoom doing you know, doing their day-to-day -day work and looking at their furniture. So, you know, that's about the transition to now we're about 50-50. So residential and storefront. Yeah, I found that from a business perspective, it was kind of nice. I don't know if you found this challenging, but whenever you do work for a client, you almost have to think, you have to kind of get in their head. You know, you have to figure out how they think. Because when people describe the final, you know, what they're hoping for, it's funny how people will use terms that may not be the exact term of what they're picturing. So you have to like almost play translator a little bit and figure out what it is they actually want and then execute it. And then I don't know if you've ever run into those times where you execute a beautiful job, but it's not what they had hoped it would be. <laughs> and you're just now they're disappointed. It's not because you did bad work. It's just a, a lost in communication. Um, but I found with the dealers, the resellers, what was nice was that once I learned how they thought, it was just easy. It became easy. Like they just would bring a piece in. They trusted me. I said, okay, great. I knew how, I knew what they wanted when they had a white oak piece or a walnut piece or a rosewood. Like I knew the look they wanted, the sheen they wanted. You just start to learn them. And it became very easy where you didn't have to relearn someone every single time. It was like reinventing the wheel. So that, that was a, a much easier market for me. And I don't know if you feel the same way. Is it harder sometimes to deal with that one-off project versus that ongoing client that you kind of be, build that relationship with? It, I agree with that. You know, we've seen just with over, you know, over the years, the stores bring, you know, bring their furniture in. Every time the a new store comes in, we have to work little things out. They don't know exactly what we do, but they want it to look the same as the previous store. So the first piece is always a little bit more, okay, let me see what they want to do. You know, how perfect do they want it? Where, you know, perfection is kind of our, you know, our motto. Like we look for every little dent, ding, scratch, like little pinhole will fill every little spot. And I think it shows and it's just that extra effort. And, you know, the way the reason I do that was years ago. That's why it still sticks with me when you say this. I had a customer. We painted this, you know, generic bookcase gray, brought it back to her. And we didn't paint the back. We figured it goes against the wall. It, you're never going to see it. You know, it was just, it never, it wasn't overspray or anything. We taped it up, but then they can, you know, complained and said, why is the back not finished? It's going in the middle of the room. And I go, okay, from then on out, I started doing all the backs. And, you know, when we paint color in our shop with our lacquer, I'll spray the bottom, I'll spray the lips, the edges, every little corner. So that way, I don't want the customer to come back and say anything to me. You know, I'm not a confrontational person. So when they get upset, it kind of bums me out. And I just want to, you know, give 100%. So that's how I treat every piece of furniture now in the shop. That's awesome, man. That's so good. Now, can I talk to you about your shop for just a second? Because I loved, there was a reel that you put out um, where you said, you know, how much money did I make flipping this? I think it was either $1,500 or $5,000 piece of furniture. And you started listing all of your um, your expenses, the rents, the, you know, yada, yada. Um, and then at the end, you actually asked the question, how much, how many pieces do you think we need to flip in order to make a profit? Are you allowed to share the answer to the, to that, to that question? Or will that take away the surprise from your, uh, your audience? I don't keep track of that, that, yeah. you know, that thoroughly, but I mean, we usually try to produce, you know, five pieces a week, roughly. I mean, not every piece is a $1,500 restoration. You know, there's, you know, chair, you know, I could do 10 chair glue ups and that'll make the same amount of money as two dresser refinishes. And we just juggle 
you know, juggle what we could get done in a week. And, you know, we you know, Monday to Friday is what we try to aim for. It's like Monday, we start something Friday, it goes out and it's done. But there are always jobs like right now overlapping. And, you know, this week we're finishing up a few that won't go out till sometime next week due to this rain that's coming in. So it, the, the, a lot of people don't understand the shop overhead you know when you when you jump from your garage to a you know a building where you have to pay rent and insurance it's a big jump and you know you have to take that into account with uh with what you charge for you know a customer i try to always be fair and when i do my quotes i'll itemize you know labor materials pickup and delivery it shows them okay where's the money going this is how much it costs me to do the work and then here's how much you know it is in total and it since changing to that about five, six years ago, it's been beneficial, you know, all around for me and for the customers. I, I'm, I'm in, intrigued by um, like, you know, or I'm not intrigued. That's the wrong word, but I'm, I'm, I'm usually, uh, it, it, I find it funny. I should say that the people, when they would come back about pricing, how they, they would view it as um, just this, like, where are you getting your hourly rate from? Like, where is this? Like, why do you think you deserve to charge this much? And then you have, again, these, you know, the scenario, like you mentioned, where working out of your home, working out of your garage, your overhead is so low. So you can do a fairly good job on certain projects. And, and that cost can be so, so much more, you know, dramatically lower. Um, you have employees, you have different things, different overhead. And um, there's just so much. I remember uh, there was a meme or a, a video going around a reel, maybe, and it was um, regarding the uh, the I think it's like a plumber who goes in and fixes something in three minutes and they charge, you know, some, um, you know, a huge amount of money. And the person goes, well, it only took you three minutes. And he's like, yeah, I'm charging for the 20 years I've spent learning how to fix this in three minutes, you know. And there's just that expertise piece that, you know, comes with time. And and uh, I, I've always was amused by some people would come in and, and fully respect the craft. And you could tell that they 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 viewed you and craftspeople as someone that, that deserved to get paid for that, that, that craft, for that expertise. And then some people, they come in and I don't know what they, what in their mind they thought it would cost, but it's kind of funny to, you know, they just assumed it would be, uh, you know, a fraction of what it actually is because they're, they're just pulling it out of thin air. They don't know what it really costs to run a business on a commercial level. That's what's interesting about the podcast is that we talk to people who are out of their garage. So they're running it on just a, part-time out of their garage sort of basis. There's no, there's really no overhead, you know, insurance premiums that commercial businesses have and all the regulations and all these things that come into play, the payrolls, there's so much that kind of buries that profit margin a little bit and you have to then make it up somewhere. So it's a, it's a tricky dance for sure. That, that's for sure. Like, so when you're talking about the, you know, the plumber thing, what comes to mind is, you know, an actual, what I've seen in my own life was, you know, that meme in real life, piano movers, I had a customer of mine, you know, the, you know, say, why was it $300 for this piano mover? They were in my house for five minutes. And, you know, the mover explained to him, I could be here for an hour and make it worth your time. But when I'm done with all my moves, I get to go home for the day. You know, just because I'm good at something and quick doesn't mean that I should charge you less. You know, right. so it kind of I saw it 10, 15 years ago. I've seen customers say that. And it's very true. You know, it's just your craft and you you take, you know, I've been doing this 18 years now and it's like, I still learn new things every day to make things a little quicker, a little bit faster, a little better, you know, touch-ups that I just posted a few weeks ago, uh, a touch-up where we had to burn through all the veneer on the edge to flatten this, you know, little jelly bean shaped table. And you just wonder why, you know, why we would do something like that to, um, you know, to it, you know, to a piece. And it's, you know, the touch up I did on that three years ago when we first restored it now looks even better because of new techniques, new materials I found and, and just like I said, three more years of practice doing touch ups. So mm -hmm. I said, just, you always are perfecting your craft. You can always do better. It's just finding the way to, to, to do it to, you know, who, who do you learn from it, You know, being the, you know, the expert, you just, you are the one that people learn from, and you're the one doing trials and errors and practicing. And then now, like on Instagram, we could show new techniques and and things that we find in, you know, in new tricks in the business. 
So when when someone thinks about owning a shop, you know, they're uh, what we do is a lot of the times we talk to flippers, right? We talk mm-hmm, to people yeah. that are in their garages that want to do this full time. They want to get it done, and a lot of the times that comes in their mind with a space and a shop to do something in. Is there a misconception that you think that they may have about owning a shop? Would it be better to stay in the garage for longer if you can, kind of a thing, or do you encourage people to move into a shop if they want to go professional? What would you kind of give them in that advice take there? I, I have the the dream of, you know, closing the shop someday and, you know, you can work on your own property and it doesn't matter if you're in your garage, in your big, you know, warehouse, big shop, it's the level of, you know, skills and the quality that you have to do in the refinishing. If you're doing it in the garage, then, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but what kind of level of work are you doing? In your garage, you're more than likely not going to have a spray booth, you know, with proper ventilation, all of those types of things. You know, your sanding area is right next to your spray booth when you're doing it in your garage. That's the best thing. You know, a lot of people ask my wife, you know, you know, where, where's Aaron's tools at? Like in our garage at home, it's just, you know, sitting here for storage. And she always makes the joke that, oh, he has a shop. Why do we need stuff in our garage when he could just go to the shop to do things? So I said, that's, you know, it it's a big jump I could see going from a garage to a shop just with the the overhead, the expenses, you know, but it's not as scary as you would expect if, you know, if you look into it, invest your time, uh, you know, find out, okay, how much do I need to charge hourly? Okay. This piece was eight hours of labor. I got to charge a hundred dollars an hour to do this, you know, materials were done and you could still make the same amount of money, you know, at the end of the day with having, you know, your garage or your shop, you just have to know how to charge properly. Yeah. And I, I would throw in there too, uh, and see if Aaron, if you agree with me on this is that, um, within restoration, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a word that has so many like levels to it. There's, there's all different types of restorers. There's some restorers who don't use a spray booth at all. You know, they, there's guys who do French polishing. It's all by hand. There's no overspray, nothing in the air. Um, you know, they're doing very old historic type restorations. Um, there's just, you know, there's obviously the painting, you know, the hand painting and things like that. Uh, what Aaron and I especially have done is, you know, we use the lacquers that you need a spray booth for. They're explosive. They're they're hazardous if you're not cautious. And so you need to have the right gear. And doing that in the garage becomes problematic and, and borderline probably illegal. <laughs> you know, we'll yeah, just say, yeah. you know, like if you're, you know, so you can't, you know, you're limited unless you're using some, you know, they have, it's come a long way. I mean, I never got into them as much. Maybe you have, Aaron, but like waterborne finishes, finishes that are more water-based and they're less dangerous, less hazardous. Um, they've come a long way for, you know, achieving uh, basically the same result on some levels. Obviously there's limitations, but um, so someone could go into that. Um, but I would just add that sometimes I think, and I think even guys with shops do this. I know I've, I've been tempted for years to do this is that you, you misuse the space you have. So you assume you need more space. You know, you, you almost, you don't think about the space you have well. I mean, I think people do it with their homes too. You know, they don't use their home space well, so they think they need a bigger house. And then they, they realize that if they just got creative with maybe taking this wall down over here or doing this little re, you know, reorganization or getting rid of some of the clutter that may not need to be there, those kind of things. Yeah. You suddenly realize, well, I just square, I just, uh, you know, um, created, you know, a lot more square footage that was right there all along. And so a lot of people working out of the garage, I think they haven't learned to really get everything out of it. And I would, I would say from my point of view is to stay there as long as you can, as long as you're safe and as long as it's working and then make the leap because with the leap comes a lot of extra burden that you take on, you know, and, and Aaron knows it as well as I do. It, it is a lot of burden, but there's also a lot of potential, you know, you have a lot more potential. So it's a, it's like a, a balancing act between between those two. At least that's what I think. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Well, agreed. Like if you're in your garage, you know, maybe take a small step, maybe go get a rental, like a storage unit, use that as storage. So your garage is only your workspace at first. And then, you know, now you have the, the, the overhead of, you know, a couple hundred dollar a month rental for a unit, you know, and then, then, you know, out here in California, the rental on a storage unit could be, you know, three to $500 a month. We've seen on large, big, you know, lockers, but that starts your 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 game of you know ex, uh, expanding, I guess you could say. You know, then your shop is your garage. It's wide open. You work on one piece at a time. There's plenty of room. 
you know, and then you start feeling, okay, maybe I could get a little bit bigger. Maybe I'll go rent a small unit, you know, maybe a thousand dollars a month. Now, you know, kind of work your way up. You don't need to go from your garage to a, you know, gigantic building, you know, a 10,000 square foot shop. In our business, I think the workshop is only about 2,000 square feet. So we're not a very big unit itself, but it's been around, like, you know, like Tim was saying, you know, it, was, it started in 1959 as a refinishing business in this building. So it was never, you know, there's no reason to move. Everything's there. The spray booth's all, you know, permitted in Orange County. It's very hard to move spray booths and get new permits. So, you know, we stick with our 2,000 square feet and we don't have any, you know, intention on moving or adding space to it, you know, especially with how uncertain sometimes, you know, the market's been the last few years. It's like, let's keep it lean and mean and just let's just deal with it the way we have it now. Like right now, we've been just cleaning the shop out, getting rid of old furniture, stuff that's been sitting around. We're trying to, you know, make space because that's really what you need to, you know, to do more work. You need more floor space to actually do the work. Not, you know, you're not a storage unit for some, you know, some of our customers. So, you know, that's the biggest thing is cleaning out your workspace doesn't matter if it's the garage or make my shop more workspace means, you know, you can make more money. Yeah. Something I did. Uh, and I don't know how I, I haven't seen, I don't know a lot about your shop, like the, how it works and exactly the layout. My shop was about 1500 square feet. So a little less. And, uh, I just realized that by putting everything on wheels was really helpful. You know, everything's on wheels. Every bench had locking casters, everything moved because then you could change your space you know, occasionally you would get, and I think you did one recently, if I'm not mistaken, maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a, like a kitchen, like, did you ever bring like a project like that in where it's cabinets, like, like larger? Did I see that on yours? I, I uh, do it every once in a while. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, once in a while you get that kind of job that really overloads the space. It's mm -hmm. just like a lot of parts and a lot of, you know, or maybe it's just, you know, a client that has a, a large order of, of many different pieces, but it overloads the space if it's permanently in one format. So by creating an open space that can evolve, uh, that is so helpful. So I, I putting everything on wheels, that was something I did. And that became super helpful because I watched videos on manufacturing. And I watched how in you know furniture manufacturing facilities, they would have everything on like these kind of uh, trolley systems and these, you know, everything is moving. Everything is kind of always in movement. It's not just sitting and so I said, well, how can I recreate that in my little shop? How can I make that? And just putting everything on wheels, you know, that was just one of those little, those little things that help a lot. So I think that's, you know, that's a big part of it is really thinking and, and being reflective on the space and how it's used and what can be done to make it a little bit more efficient every day. And then after this, you know, this uh, video posts, I'll maybe I'll make a video of all the little dollies that we have in our shop. You know, some of them are probably older than me. They've been, they've probably been around this shop since, you know, the seventies, you know, maybe the early eighties. And, you know, we just maintain them. Like they have a, layers of paint on them. You know, I want to add, I've added a few different shapes that, you know, we see a lot more chairs or some smaller like nightstands. We don't need a large dolly for a, you know, for a small nightstand, but then we can do, um, uh, I'll, I'll make a post on that once this video launches and we'll take care of that and show everyone what we do. Like I said, like you were saying, Gary, everything's on wheels in the shop, all the tables, all the, the dollies and you know, the, your typical furniture dolly from Home Depot or, you know, Harbor Freight. They don't work for furniture. A lot of times, you know, they'll try to put them on the bottom panels, but then they don't realize, you know, how the furniture is constructed. And it's a little quarter inch or eighth inch piece of just filler board. And it, it could snap and break the bottom of the cabinet. So you want to set it on the legs, on the you know, you know, get the full circumference of the uh, you know, the the piece of furniture you're working on. You want it to sit comfortably on a table so it doesn't fall off and you know, and cause more problems for you in the restoration process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I I've used a a product. It's this. It's called the. Uh, Gemba pipe. And uh, what's really cool is you can build anything out of it. It's they use it in Japan a lot and you can build any fixture you can imagine out of it. And it's super cool because you can evolve it and you can combine tables with each other. And it just becomes really useful in these environments because you can have a little two by two foot table that's perfect for chairs. It's not too much, but then you can link some together and create something for a larger piece. And it's, it's fun for me. I don't know if you get joy out of that aspect of the business, but I love even just working on the way that I do work. It's just kind of one of my, it's one of my addictions, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, but the other thing too, I just wanted to move on because one of the things I wanted to bring up 
was um, you did a project not too long. Well, maybe you did it a while ago, but I saw the post. Uh, I think it was in January. And you did. Um, I'm wearing actually a Disney <laughs> right now in honor of it. Um, but you did a project. Was it for Disney or was it a client that had Disney furniture? It, it was for a client. It was, it's one of my art okay. galleries in Laguna Beach down here. And yeah, I think it took him almost a year, year and a half to find all these pieces in auction. Wow. And I think we, that was probably, I think that was, that was pre pandemic is when that show actually happened. It might've been 2019. And okay. yeah, he basically collected these pieces for a few years. Um, you know, like the drafting table sat around our shop was one of those pieces sat around for about a year, not knowing what he was mm-hmm. going to do with it. And, you know, and then he finally found all the other parts of this, you know, this Disney, um, I guess, antique vintage office, you know, it had all the Mm -hmm. stickers, Burbank, California, I think it says 1954. And finally, you know, he was going to, I think the Miami art show, um, I said 2019. So he finally gave us a deadline to get all of these pieces done by. And, you know, we sat around for a while. I was trying to convince him not to restore them because there's so many Disney people would want to keep it, the vintage, the original, all the, uh, the, the drafting table had all the little compass holes in it when they were probably drawing, you know, Mickey mouse or things like that. It's, it really is, you know, it was it just furniture is all it looked like, but you knew the history behind it. You know, did right. Walt Disney actually come to that table? You know, was he actually looking at, you know, you see pictures on, you know, documentaries. I'm like, is that the table? Is that the, you know, the chair that they're sitting in? It's just, kind of cool to see the history behind yeah. it so you know and the designer is kem weber right correct is that, correct? that is yeah, correct kem, i actually yeah. have a book i have a book uh, i purchased online um about his disney collection how he was hired to create all this custom furniture and when i saw that come through your feet i was like oh man <laughs> i said if, if that ever came my wife is a disney fanatic she loves disney and we both we both are, are fans but she loves Disney and I'm like, and she's also an illustrator. She loves, you know, she's so if that ever came through my shop, I don't know if I, it would just disappear. I think it would disappear and end up somewhere. She would, she would steal it because uh, it's, it was cool to see that. I mean, that's such a piece of history, such a, that's the cool thing about restoration. You probably see it all the time is these pieces that come through and are either iconic, like designers who have done them and, you know, they were mass produced, but it's still a kind of iconic, like the Eames lounge chair, that kind of thing, yeah. you know? Uh, but then you get these these kind of pieces that have such a story built into them. It's like it's just so cool to be a part of that that's that whole storyline, you know, that you kind of come in in that moment and do something with it and it carries on beyond you. Yeah, so exactly. I, I just was really intrigued by that post. That was really cool. And to, I commented on it. I actually well, mentioned I, I was wondering if that I was, was you. I didn't know if it was you or Tim. No, so I was, was, was going <laughs> to bring it up. I said that's coming. That's going to be brought up. I'm going to bring yeah. it up on the podcast. So. Yeah, so yeah, on that one, I said we we fought about it for a while and you know trying to convince him like leave it vintage. There's so many collectors who would buy this as is. Uh, he had us restore it to pristine condition. Took it to the Miami Art Show. He sold every piece except for the airline chair to one customer. Bought the entire office, and then another person bought one of those of the airline chairs. So, you know, and at the time, like you would have never imagined these pieces being worth the amount of money that they go for, right. you know, like that airline chair. I think I've seen three of them go through our shop and I think they sell for like twenty five thousand dollars, you know, somewhere in that region. And you're like, it's just a chair. It, <laughs> it's just a piece of wood that's, you know, cantilevered and, you know, it's solid, I think, maple or, or birch, one of the two. And it's just a just a chair with leather but like i said it's the history behind it you know did walt sit in that chair in you know the executive office there weren't that many of those made you know so i think one of on on one of the previous podcasts you guys had someone you know talking about doing museum pieces and it starts from grandma's old furniture the pieces we started with were just one little nightstand a little dresser that someone kept in the family it was maybe 1930s 1940s and then we're doing pieces like that that really belong in museums. And there's no difference in how we treat it. You know, the name behind it, it it doesn't matter. It's just a, you know, mahogany cabinet. It could be, you know, priceless to the homeowner, but have zero dollar value. Or it could be a mahogany cabinet that we've seen, you know, we've seen a $40,000 uh, Philippon cabinet, you know, from I believe it's France. And you know, like they are built very similar. It's just the name behind it and the, yeah. you know, the design. 
that's what you're paying for is the name and the design of the architect that, you know, that imagined it. Aaron, I gotta, I gotta chime in on this because you, you talk about all this Disney furniture and all this. It's just so awesome that you have like had the chance to keep that alive and keep that story going um, in those pieces. And like you said, it's like, did Walt Disney himself, like, did he sit down at this table? Did he actually come up with some of the, you know, all of his creativity at, on these pieces of furniture. So to have all of that in your hands to restore, you know, do you feel the weight of that when you're doing pieces? Um, but also I'm, I'm just kind of wondering what other stories or do you have any other like high level pieces like that, like other companies um, that we would know uh, ESPN or like Coca-Cola or some real big name kind of, I, I don't know. I just, I find it very interesting and uh, figured I'd ask you that one. So I don't like to know what we're working on until it's done. I, I do get a little bit of that, like the the butterflies or whatever you want to say when you're working on something, knowing it's worth X amount of dollars, you know, a $10,000, $20,000 you know, piece. You know, anything under 10000 I don't really care anymore. It's kind of sad to say that. But, you know, an Eames chair, you're like, okay, like we'll just knock it out. But, but yeah, working on something that has that, that, you know, vibrato that, that, that just that nostalgia to it is I don't like to know until we're completed, you know, the pieces that we do for this art gallery in Laguna, whenever he brings something in, I know that it's something, I don't know what it's worth. I don't know who the designer is because his are so like, like niche designers that I wouldn't know them off the top of my head. It wasn't a Drexel. It's not, you know, a Kip Stewart cabinet. This is somebody I have no clue who it is, but know it's valuable. So I don't even do a Google search. I don't do anything like that until it's out of the shop. Then I'm like, okay, that was a X amount of dollar piece that that we brought back to life. It's pretty amazing to see. You know, it's just knowing like some customers will come in and just say, oh, this is a such and such. And I'm like, I don't care. It's teak. It's walnut. It's just a piece of furniture. And then at the end, I go then and then I'll do the you know Google search. How much was that worth? I, it was funny because I did a uh, a set of chairs once for a client. Um, they were just these porch chairs. They were very old. They were heavily painted and, uh, and come to find out they were related to the person who, um, designed central park. I can't think of the guy's name. Um, but he designed central park. He designed those kind of open spaces all over the country. And, um, where the house is in the town that I grew up in that these chairs were at. And she said, yeah, he used to spend the summers here, you know? And so, you know, probably like you were with the Disney furniture, you're just imagining that like, Mm -hmm. did he design Central Park, you know, sitting in this chair, you know, you just start to, the romance of the whole thing starts to, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, that that could have been, it may not have been, but it's just a fun, it's fun when you have We had that years ago, um, working for the old business where I, you know, was apprenticing was a piano restoration company. And we worked on this piano that they they had sworn Abraham Lincoln played this piano. You know, it was an old vintage Steinway, you know, all rosewood cabinet. You know, looked it up. The dates all matched. But it's like, did Abraham Lincoln really sit at this piano that I'm sitting at right now? It's It was very, uh, you know, amazing to hear. Similar story, what you're saying now. There was another piano that the customer, re- we did a full restoration on. And we did, you know, full refinishing, new keys, new strings. But there was one key at the very end of the treble section that had a cigarette burn in it. Well, come to figure out that the friend of the family was Frank Sinatra. And they did not want to burn that or or get rid of that burnt key because Frank Sinatra set his cigarette down there while he was playing the piano in the person's home. So I'm like, all right, like maybe save the key, like maybe save it and put it away you restore the whole piano and keep that as, you know, maybe make a, a, a like a photo box or, you know, a, a shadow box with it in it. That would be ideal. But, you know, this customer wanted to leave it on their piano because of, you know, the family friend was, you know, Frank Sinatra. It was pretty cool. Right. Um, those are the, those are the first ones that come to mind when you're, you know, asking something, you know, big yeah. names, like, uh, like what Brian was asking with, you know, we don't really see any of like those big name people in here yet. Like, uh, you know, stuff for ESPN or Coca-Cola. And I go, we're trying to get there, trying to, you know, expand the social media. Maybe some people will see it. Um, and, you know, and go from there. Like, it doesn't matter like who the customer is. Like we've, you know, friends and, you know, friends of mine know a lot of you know famous people and all that, but they're just people. When you meet them, 
they're they're normal they don't like to be bothered treat them like a normal human being like at the end of the day they're you know if they're refinishing they're my customer so i want to just take care of them like i take care of everybody else you just mentioned uh expanding the social media and one of the things i wanted to bring up was that you seem to be pretty good at that <laughs> so you you've been you've been killing it on on instagram i mean you have a great following for for a service based sort of refinishing business you have a great following and you put out so much content. So this is shifting gears, but I just wanted to, to say like what triggered that process and how did you get that rolling? Because you do, you've, you've, you've kind of exploded over I the did. last, uh, I don't know what year, two about, years, how about a it? year, about a year yeah. and yeah. like almost a year and a half. So yeah. what was it? You know, post during the pandemic, you know, we were just, we were so busy the first, you know, beginning of 2020 into 2021 and we didn't know what to do. So I think it was November of, I think it was 2021. I just said, we're going to start doing social media. I'm going to start just pushing it. I go, there's so many people making money off of this and, and let's just see what happens. You know, I think TikTok was starting to really explode. I, I started a TikTok. Don't really, I just copy and paste my videos onto there. Now I mainly focus on Instagram at the moment, but it was, you know, let's post once a day. You know, that's what everyone was saying. Let's just do uh, a you know a single post, and then it went to two posts a day, then to three posts a day, and I was just following all what I saw on Instagram, and you know finally you know a video went viral. You know it was five to six months of nothing. You saw zero action, but I'm like I'm just going to keep trucking through, get this done, and you know they just say it takes time. Had a viral you know video go viral, but then it went dead again for another month. Nothing. It was dead quiet you know, small, you know, small likes, small views. And then another video of the, uh, the Hans Wagner swivel chair, I think it hit 2.3 million views. And after that, you know, that's when the page exploded. It was right about there till something, you know, something happened in September of last year and it's just stalled. So, you know, I think it says something around 50,000 and, you know, it, it was 46, 47,000 in September. So it hasn't really done much. But I get three to four phone calls a week that I follow you on Instagram. I want to, I want you to restore my peace. So I go at this point. I don't care about what the number is. I keep just posting the um, the the quality, you know, the content, the befores and afters. I'm been trying to do a little bit more like small how tos of you know how we glue things up, how we do filling repairs, those type of things. And I go. The 49,000 people I have right now are active. Mm -hmm. So I don't care if it gets to a larger number. These ones are good followers. They love the work that we do. And, you know, I think I finally realized, you know, when, when this all started was watching all like the, the people that you have on this, you know, on this podcast to do it in their garage, they were getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of follows. And I go, is what I do really that important? Like to me, it's just work. I just go to work and, you know, do the refinishing and I go home and spend time with the family. And, you know, that's it. I finally realized they're not doing something right. They're doing this wrong. They should do, I go, maybe I should start posting, you know, that the way we do it, um, you know, a lot of my customers probably what, you know, you were saying earlier, Gary, you know, they, they kind of have a verb for, uh, for what we do. It's called errand. They, <laughs> they show, uh, they can see a piece of furniture in a store that, you know, that they know Aaron refinished that one. It just, they have a look to it. You can go to store, see 10 pieces of furniture and one of them's restored. They'll know that it was you know us that did it. You know, and Aaron, you talk a lot about, you know, this, the furniture being Aaron, right? And like, and Gary talked a lot about even your reputation of knowing exactly what you're doing so well that, you know, you have this reputation that precedes you. Um, I loved that you recently put this out and I'll read the caption for you. Uh, but you said fixing veneer chips isn't really that hard, is it? Uh, does this give you a little bit more confidence to try it yourself? I'll teach you all the tricks in my course. Uh, message me to find out more. Can you tell me a little bit about the course that you're putting together? Because I'm sure for refinishing buffs and people that really want to learn how to do this at a high level, uh, you're going to be a great mentor for them, uh, probably a lot like Butch Crane was for you. So can you tell me a little bit about what your course is and how to get involved with that? So right now we are still building it. I've been you know, advertising it now for probably about a year just to see if it had any any legs to it. I wanted to see if people were willing to, you know, to do it. Um, I think right now 
we're about halfway done writing, you know, the script, what, what it's going to be as a website where, you know, you have a membership, you come in and pay, you know, X amount of dollars per month, and it'll have access to all these private videos. You know, basically I have, I think almost 30 steps in the restoration process from, you know, how do we disassemble furniture to this is, you know, the three or four types of glue that we use. And this is what we use for each, you know, each application. And, you know, right now where we're trying to finish up is the actual finishing part of the course where it's how do we mix the lacquers? What's the ratio? You know, all the stuff that I don't I'm not going to post on public, you know, on YouTube, on Instagram. I'm going to show you what we use. I have no problem you know, saying like we use Mohawk products for 99 percent of the work in the shop from the fillers to the the lacquers to the, you know, the touch up kit. And, you know, they're the best product out there, I feel. And, you know, I'm. You know, I have a store just down the street. That's what they sell is Mohawk. I go to the one store. I don't go shop around. I stay, you know, stay right there. But I'm going to teach everybody, um, you know, how to use each product and not just tell them, oh, this is what we use. I'm going to, you know, it's like I said, 30 steps to restore the pieces the way we do. I want to, I thought about it the other day. It would be more of a handbook that I give to a new employee and say, here's what we do. Go to this page. You'll learn literally step by step. Uh, right now we are actually, you know, I have a friend you know, who found me on Instagram. She's been coming in with her own projects, but I've been teaching her and it's really making me go through this course that I'm writing. And I went through and reread it again the other day. Now that I'm actually teaching somebody and okay, I'm going to switch this. I'm going to change the wording on that. This is how I just showed her how to do this. It really is a, um, you know, realizing people want to learn is, I don't know, life changing. It's, it's, it, it's just, I never thought I would get to this point. You know, I just refinished furniture and went home. And now we, you know, we have a big following on Instagram and, and hopefully YouTube. Eventually we started our YouTube channel and have a few videos up there, but, you know, we're trying to get a lot more, you know, long form content to, you know, promote, more promote the course, then that way they can come to the website and actually learn from us directly. Yeah. You mentioned the products and what's funny is, is that there's a Pete, there's, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's, you know, considered an expert, it's not just the technique. I mean, the technique is, is huge. I mean, that's a big part of it, but a lot of times the years it's taken to figure out the right combination of products, you know, that takes time. I mean, you mentioned Mohawk finishing products. They make a, a line of products that all sort of work together. And it's kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of what needs to be done. But then there's just all these little, you know, side products that can be used for different reasons at different times for different, you know, and uh, just being able to deliver that information to to the public, you know, who does take the course that you create. That's huge. I mean, the technique is huge, but also just cutting out all that wasted time of trying to figure out what to use and, you know, just to know this is the list, you know, this is what I use to get these results. You don't have to look anymore. You know, here it is. That saves, I mean, how many years have you stumbled through trying this and going, Oh, that didn't work thinking, Oh, I'll switch lacquers and then going, Oh, that lacquer is nowhere near as good as the last lacquer or whatever it might be. Um, you know, that is a, a huge value right there. I mean, that's probably worth worth the membership in and it of itself is just getting straight to the meat of what to use, let alone the, and how to the, use the how it. to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I said yeah. the guy I got trained from, um, you know, he learned by trial and error. So, I mean, there was no Internet. There was there was no cell phones. There was nothing out there to, you know, to help him. He learned by messing up and how to fix it. So, you know, when I started, he had already gone through all those problems. And taught me at a young age how to, you know, how to do it. And now, you know, that was, you know, 18 years ago when I first started. So, you know, take five years off. So, you know, like I said, I've been 13 years at the shop by myself and I'm still learning new tricks. You know, we don't try a lot of new products. We're, we're old fashioned in that sense. We're, we're hard headed. We stick with what we know. Um, you know, changing from just sandpaper and then using sanding sponges was a big step for us. You know, five, six years ago, we added those to the arsenal. Like, why did we not use this for, you know, for the last 10 years? This this is a great product for spindles and those kind of things. But, you know, teaching the, you know, a, the I guess you could say the new generation of restorers out there is, you know, kind of what I want to see. You know, it's, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see we had a health scare back in September 
you know, I had a minor heart attack. And after that, after recovery, I realized I go, where does all my knowledge go if something were to happen to me? You know, I go, I leave, you know, my wife and, you know, now two kids. And I go, that's one. But I go, all the knowledge that that these people, you know, don't know. Like I learned from an old timer. He's no longer with us. I mean, the guy I actually trained from, he's retired. All the all the old timers aren't out there teaching. So I go, I wanna I wanna kind of give back and and help the younger generation. I think, you know, when Gary and I were talking previously, it was like they start in their garage, they'll start learning new tricks. And I hope, you know, some of them, maybe half of them want to step up to do the kind of restorations that we do. You know, they start with painting, they start just, just tinkering. I started in high school woodworking shop and that's where, you know, that's where I started and knew I wanted to get into this business somehow. And now here we are doing, you know, museum quality pieces, you know, stuff with big, you know, Disney furniture that has history and like I said, it all started just like I said, high school wood shop and and a you know, apprenticing at a piano restoration company is where I started. So like I said it can it can definitely be done. It's it's how much you want to put into it. You know, that's that's the I think the biggest advice I can give on that one is just always strive to be better. You know, push it, you know, try aim for perfection on every, you know, every piece, even if it's in your garage. Uh, when I was teaching the girl the other day, I go fix this one little ding. I go, cause if you're going to sell these pieces of furniture, um, the person's going to come in, see that one little dent on it and ask you for a discount. So if you can fix it, give them zero reasons to complain. They can't lowball you. They can't say something's wrong with it. You will make more, you know, more money taking 10 seconds to sand out that little dent that's in the corner and, you know, make it perfect. Like that's, that's what I was teaching her. So like I said, it's, it really is a, uh, like a, a blessing, honestly, to, you know, to be here in general. And now I want to, you know, pay it forward with teaching you know, the next generation. Two things I just wanted to mention on to piggyback. That was, um, I had a mentor of mine once that said, first you build your reputation and then your reputation builds you. And that's kind of what you're talking about. It's, it's, you know, it's being, it's doing, perfection level or at least striving for that when you have no one really noticing because then eventually people notice and then suddenly it it just takes off and you know you've seen that in your you know in your business and in your career it's like you know but you can't wait to do perfection later when you have the you know the kind of clientele you hope for you have to do it first and then earn that clientele but the other thing i wanted to mention just a really quick what you were talking about the teaching and the sharing and all this stuff I feel like it's a natural progression for a craftsperson. Um, there was a book I read once called Why We Make Things and Why It Matters by Peter Korn. He's a furniture maker and um, great book. Highly recommend it. It's a great read. Uh, I do audio books all the time. And, and in that, he talks about how he started off uh, as, a, as a carpenter um, and then he evolved into making furniture and he opened up a store and all through the 60s and 70s and onward, he you know this whole career path. And then eventually he opened up a furniture making school and, you know, it, it just is natural evolution because you get to a point where you've done so much work and now you're like, there's other people trying to do this and trying to go the same path I went. And what can I do to help them get here faster? How can I help eliminate the potholes? And, you know, so it, as you're talking about what you're hoping to do in this next chapter of your life, it reminded me of that book where naturally the craftsperson moves away from just doing the craft to teaching the craft and helping other people do it well. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's very true. I love that. Well, Aaron, man, thank you so very much for being with us today. What wisdom you've got and just such value for our listeners. Um, as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one more question, which yeah. is in like less than 90 seconds, uh, what's one piece of advice that you have for maybe a newer restorer as they're getting into the business? What's one piece of advice that you could leave them with? I think we just went over that with yeah. uh, you know, just strive for perfection. Just you know, do that little extra, like Gary was just saying, it may not be, uh, you know, what people see you doing, but it's, you know, it ultimately will, will pay off in the end. You know, I had, uh, the, the old timer on my side of, you know, my side of the country over here was, you know, he had told me, you know, when I first took over, you know, 23 years old, fresh in this business, let's start, you know, just 
do good work. Don't cheat the customer. Don't lie to a customer. And you'll never have to worry about work ever again. And, you know, I said 13 years later, that's what we strive to do. We just aim for, for perfection and, you know, always try to learn, you know, learning is key, you know, in, in life, you know, it definitely is, is a, uh, the, the goal is just to keep striving to be better. And that's what we're going to keep doing as well. We're going to get better with Instagram. We're going to get better with YouTube. We've perfected the refinishing. Now we're going to, you know, branch out and try something else new. I love that. I love that. And Aaron, where can people find you uh, on Instagram, your website? Where, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Moore's underscore refinishing on Instagram. And uh, we refinish more with two O's dot com is the website. You get all the social medias. The course will be on that website. Um, if you want to sign up, send me a DM on Instagram and we'll we'll get you on the waiting list. Beautiful. Well, Aaron, thank you so much again for your time. I know you're a busy guy. We really appreciate it. And we can't wait to have you hopefully on again in the future. Anytime, guys. Well, friends, I wanted to say thank you so very much for joining us today on the Flips Duration Nation podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can do so by leaving us a rating if you're over on Apple Podcasts and by subscribing on any podcast platform that you're on so that you know exactly when the next episode drops. If you love this episode, you can share it with a friend that really helps us get the word about Flips Duration Nation out. This podcast is produced entirely by the Stripwell team. Here at Stripwell, our goal is to help every single restorer and flipper have a more quick, clean and safe way to practice their passion, their work, and their side hustle. Our flagship product is called QCS, which stands for quick, clean, and safe. And it's an entirely eco-friendly, no VOC, non-flammable vintage furniture stripper. You can pick yours up today by heading to stripwell.com. And friends, the reason that we produce this podcast here at Stripwell is so that you can just have yet another free resource to help your flipping journey become better and better as you continue to flip and restore incredible furniture. If we can do anything to help your flipping journey, please be sure to reach out to us on Instagram. We are at Stripwell, S-T-R-I-P-W-E-L-L, or you can find that in the podcast description down below. As always, friends, keep on flipping and we will see you in the next one.